Welcome to the One Last Sketch Podcast, a show dedicated to science fiction, fantasy, and history. I'm Michael. And I'm Marie. This is episode 20, and until I can think of a better title, we'll just call it Horrible Books We Read as Teenagers. Or Younger. I was very precocious, what can I say? That's not actually entirely what we're going to be talking about. There'll be some good books thrown in here, too. But Mm. the general issue we're driving at is that when we grew up, there wasn't such a thing as young adult literature, per se. Yes. It wasn't shortened down to YA, and when you walked into a library, there was no YA section. And this whole concept of YA is unnecessary. And it's just (laughs) genrefication for the sake of companies such as chapters that they can sell things in multiple areas, to have demographics, and it's all marketing. <laughs> so, when we were younger and we wandered into a bookstore or the library, there was the adult fiction section and the junior section. And one yeah. simply jumped from the juniors when you were capable of reading a book by yourself and felt pretty comfortable with that, and you'd just start reading the adult fiction. Well, you'd move between them through most of your teenage years, right? Ah, uh, yeah, true. But after a while, I learned to disparage the kids section and just read adult fiction, so I was a snob. Until, until you got old enough to know better. Yes, and I was like, actually, these kid books are great. See our previous podcast on Lloyd Alexander's The Chronicles of Pride Inc. Yeah, this isn't the first time we've talked about books for younger people. Some of you will remember our dragon episode, which was mostly focused on those sorts of books. Uh, (laughs) We're mostly going to skip over those for this one. What I'm thinking about is books that we read when we were younger that might not necessarily have been in the junior section, but Mm. kind of filled that same niche and had common features with what you can find in. Yeah, because there there was a time when you'd go into the adult section, and there was definitely books that had a different kind of vibe, and you just kind of know that it was a book that you could read as well, whereas some of the adult sci-fi fantasy was not accessible to you. And you could just, like, you just had a sixth sense about it. You didn't need a shelf saying YA, telling you which ones were for you. (laughs) You'd know because the protagonists would usually be teenagers. Mm-hmm. It would usually be a coming-of-age story. Mm-hmm. And really, that was all you needed at the time. You could look through a few yeah. pages and you'd see that the prose was not too complicated and there weren't very many big words unless they were made-up ones. And you yeah. know. And I found in general that um, as, as long as it wasn't... Well, actually, this isn't even true. As long as it wasn't, like, partic- really graphic, then you'd be like, ah, oh, it's for kids. Although some of the books we're going to get into are actually pretty pretty graphic. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think the big indicators that would tell you this is a book that you want to read as a teenager was, A, the cover. Mm. have a very certain style. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, typically very 80s-looking art. Yep. And then you'd open it, and you'd read the first few sentences. Basically, you'd know. Yep. Immediately. <laughs> so, when we were growing up, as I said, there is the junior section, which still exists. Now we call it middle grade literature. We do? Oh my god, I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> <laughs> I think even at the time, it was called middle grade literature. 
And that was stuff like Patricia C. Reedy, yes. Dragons, or Jade Yolen, mm-hmm. or Lloyd Alexander, or Madeline Langle, the uh, A Wrinkle in Time, which is usually remembered very fondly by people. Mm-hmm. Or The Dark is Rising, which is remembered fondly, but usually when people try and read as adults, they find it really dull. It's, you know what, it's weird, because you read The Dark is Rising as a kid, and it's like, it's not like it's less boring. It's just that you keep going, you're like, this must be something where there's going to be something really cool, and there never quite is. Like, it's not bad, it's just got an atmosphere of boring <laughs> over time. I don't want to beg on it, because I'm pretty sure The Dark is Rising was the first fantasy book I ever read. Yeah. And I definitely mm-hmm. went seeking for more yeah. after that. <laughs> I totally read that series out of order. I actually started with, like, uh, not the... It wasn't... No, I did start with, um... Frig, what's it called? The Grey King. I, I kept wanting to say The High King, but that's the Lloyd Alexander book. Uh, it was The Grey King, and then I read the one that immediately preceded that, and I was kind of like, this is confusing. And that one was all about, like, green men. And then I think I was like, let's just do this properly. And I read, then, I think The Dark is Rising is the first one. Yeah, and I definitely read Langle out of order and then I didn't read A Wrinkle of Time until yeah. a couple of years ago. I read The Wind at the Door and A Swiftly Tilting Planet because that was all that was in our grade 5 classroom. Yeah, and it was... Um, I never read those. I should probably read those. Are they good? Yes, they're very Catholic. You might like them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm culturally Catholic, so I'm sure I'll be like, ha, ah, these mores of guilt. It's hilarious. <laughs> uh, Diana Wynne Jones also falls under this category with Howl's Moving Castle and that kind of stuff. These are all books that you can read as an adult and like. I think it's safe to say. Yeah, and a lot of them, it's kind of like, oh well, you know, this is a piece of literature. Blah 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 blah. And then we had our shelves and shelves of Redwall. Oh yeah, kind of where I want to start to begin here. <laughs> All right, so after talking for about six minutes, much of which will probably get edited out, let us truly begin. Oh, I'm not editing any of this out. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> let us begin with Redwall, which I believe I did read Redwall before I read The Lord of the Rings, but it was about the same time when I was eleven years old that I, I read really it. got into these. I think I actually came to Redwall a little bit later, because it was after I saw the cartoon playing on Teletoon, and then I think I read Mossflower. Oh, you with your Teletoon. Yeah, well, it's you not my fault. I lived in the, it's not my fault I didn't grow up in apparently the 1940s <laughs> in, in Whitehorse, so there. And uh, then I kind of watched that show, and I was like, yeah, it's okay. And then later on, I think it was... Like grade eight or nine, I read a bunch of the Redwall books, and pretty quickly, I read them pretty solidly for a couple of years, and then I was like, you know what? It's very formulaic, and it's pretty much the exact same story. And then I purged yes. them all off my shelf, and I, to this day, I have only kept Martin the Warrior, um, Redwall, and Mossflower. Mossflower being the best of them. <laughs> so. Well, you've actually reread them. I've reread Mossflower I've re-read quite a few, a few times. Of them. Yeah, I have. I think we should mention the author name. Brian Jacques, and he yep. died a few years ago. Yes. 
too much sadness from very many people. And these books, for those of you who aren't familiar with them, mm -hmm. it's a very long series, mm. generally disconnected narratives, so you don't yeah. need to read them in order. Yeah. Their main feature is that they're medieval fantasies where all the main characters are rodents of some kind. No, or just animals. Or just animals. Forced, like English forest animals. But small animals, not... Yeah. There aren't talking horses no. or well, stags or any of that. I guess the largest kind of creatures are badgers, probably. Yes, even though we're not quite sure what the scale is. Yeah, the scale seems to freaking change a lot. <laughs> So. Not to mention the geography, which is similarly uh, malleable. That dilates in a plot-necessary way, <laughs> and shrinks in a plot-necessary way. <laughs> so I read The Bellmaker first, which had an evil fox in it, or a wolf skull, hmm. um, and took place in the southern region, so it wasn't even in Redwall Abbey. Yep. For most of it. <laughs> I read Mossflower, which is like a prequel time period to Redwall, and Redwall's mentioned as a thing that's going to happen in the future, and um, there's an evil lynx, and then there's Martin the Warrior, and he's pretty cool. He's a mouse. I, I think for the mm -hmm. both of us, our favorite one is the first one we read, and yeah. I think that's probably the case for everyone probably into this series, and because... A lot of them have very similar plots, a very similar main character, yeah. and they're very easily consumable. It's definitely one of those books that I had on my uh, on my shelf of things that I'd read when I felt sick and had to stay home for a day, because you could polish it off pretty quickly, and it's satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> so, as we said, very formulaic, which not necessarily a bad thing when you're a kid, because yeah. you're looking for comfort there. And the usual pattern is you would get a lot of these, burn through them, and then probably never look at them again. <laughs> yeah. Although it's funny, because I, I did reread Mossflower not that long ago, maybe about four months ago, and as I read it, I was like, wow, there's lots of things here that I totally never picked up on as a kid. For example, there's a rescue mission at one point, in which more people die than are rescued, and they have a celebration. I was like, what about all those people who died? Or characters who died, but they're not main characters. I guess we'll have a feast now. <laughs> and uh, or yeah. the weird caught racial dynamics. <laughs> yeah, the bad guys are always various weasels, rats, stoats, stoats, martins. And I think it was only in the Bellmaker that I remember there actually being good weasels. I, I remember, I can't remember if it's like, is it the end of the long patrol or something? That there's weasels like throwing away their armor or something. They're like, hey, it's really nice to not be a bad guy. And I was like, this is odd. And I think that that's around when I was started to stop reading them. It's, it was getting, honestly, I was like, those are just getting a bit silly. Like, they're not bad. They're just, they're good. They're just fine. <laughs> no, they're, they're adventure stories. They have one conceit that they play really hard. Yes. Uh, and something that you do like as a kid. Yeah. It's something that's been copied multiple times since then. Yeah. And it's not like this is an original idea either, because he's mm -hmm. just taking the Wind Willows... Giving them swords! <laughs> ...putting it in an earlier era and basing it on sort of Walter Scott historic fancies. Yeah. Instead of these cozy house... Although, I wonder, because the comic Mouse Guard it seems to be pretty similar... 
But Mouse Guard, yeah. I think, is actually kind of a lot better. Also, Mouse Guard is just thought out very well. Yes. In a way that Redwall wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I like the... uh, For instance, with Redwall, they, they live in Redwall Abbey, but I have no idea who they worship or... <laughs> yeah! What sect they're part of? <laughs> they seem to be monks. There's not a whole lot of praying going on here. Also, and yeah. Mouseguard is a comic book and a very recent example, but yeah. even as a kid, there were a lot of imitations like Gary Kilworth's The Welkin Weasels, which its big its big reversal was that the weasels are good guys too. <laughs> oh my goodness. I don't know. I mean, I feel like some of this might also play on, like, Watership Down, which you've also reviewed previously. Um, just, instead of just having creatures fighting in a natural way, we just give them some clothing and a shield. <laughs> well, it's an anthropomorphized version of a really popular children genre from earlier, which would be from animals' points of view. Yeah. Because I remember reading books where it would be like, the great migration of so-and-so from here to here. Yeah. Which is obviously riffing on Watership Down. Yeah. A lot of books came out at the time that were like that. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. I think it's safe to say we can remember Red Wolf only. Oh, yeah. We're not putting it under the crap we read. (laughs) No, it's... it's it's it is definitely targeted towards a younger audience, and that's fine. <laughs> and it shows, and I had no desire to revisit them now, thinking that my memories will probably be spoiled. Yeah, they will be spoiled. But it, also, it it is kind of it's still pleasant. I'll say though, it's now it's still pleasant. It's just not the same woohoo that you have as a kid. <laughs> well, especially when you've read the novels that it's sort of based on, hmm. right? The earlier adventure stories from the 19th century. Because again, you grew up in the 40s. What? Yes, because I grew up in the 1940s. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you had a typewriter and three But but for some reason, despite me growing up in the 1940s, I did read Animorphs. (laughs) (laughs) Let's, yeah, let's really get started then. I never read Animorphs, actually. I never read Animorphs, really? I took one look at those covers of, like, kids' books and I'd be like, this looks like crap. <laughs> and then I didn't well, make them up. they were published by Scholastic. Hmm. K. Applegate, you'd go to the back of your little Scholastic uh, order form that teachers would give you, which I don't even know if they do that anymore. I don't know if they I do that anymore. I assume so, because Scholastic distributes mainly directly that way. Yeah. I, I know that they also stock books in bookstores, but that's not their, or at yeah. least at the time, it was not their funding story, right? Mm-hmm. So at the back, it'd be like, join the Animorphs fan club. We'll send you ten books a month or something crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And there were lots of Animorphs. Uh, The school library, of course, had tons of them on the spin racks. Yes, they did. And all of them had these really poorly, well, it was the early days of computer done graphics. And they would have these really poor transformation sequences. Yep. Of, like, a kid turning into a lizard or a spider or something. <laughs> a spider? Usually it was something like a panther or a wolf or a more and noble would, animal. In the little corner, on the right-hand corner, they'd have the transformation sequence that you could flip through. Yes. They would do the flip book where it showed them transforming, but of course, because early days computer animation, it's still a <laughs> Yes. 
big print, short chapters, science fiction meant, as far as I can tell, to terrify children. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what happened. I'm guessing quite a lot of the books would be consumed by discovering what your transformation powers were like. Well, the main conceit is that there is an alien invasion going on by creatures called Yerks, Mm -hmm. which are parasites that wrap around people's brains and then can imitate them exactly based on their memories and so Wow, that is so creepy. So this, this vast conspiracy of the... The, uh, the invasion has already begun a long time ago, and they're winning because they've assimilated most of the population. If it wasn't for you damn kids... Because <laughs> 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 there's a group of children who are at a construction site, and an alien crash lands there who's fighting the parasite full and gives them blocks that lets them transform to creatures that they touch. So they can transform into any animal as long as they touch it first. Right? So, so But they have their kids. main favorite animal. Of oh. Course. <laughs> oh. I um, see. That sounds really from dumb. from then on, melodrama. <laughs> yeah. The day. And also trying to make these powers seem vaguely useful for defeating a vast alien invasion. Yeah, wow. I had no idea that it was actually to fight aliens. I just assumed that they were kind of just getting these and then they just go and do, like, hijinks. Well, <laughs> wow, that's sounds hijinks terrible. too. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's not a bad conceit for a science fiction novel. At least the alien invasion thing has been done before. Yeah. Puppet Masters. Well, it's just invasion of the body snatchers, really. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of early science fiction stories from the 30s that done exact same thing. What it brings to the table is the animal transformation and super wish fulfillment yeah. <laughs> of being able to turn into a wolf yeah. or whatever you want to. Mm-hmm. Again, really short, big prints, and weirdly terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> You were you were scarred by the descriptions of these aliens? Not really. You were just reading them and going, that's cool. <laughs> but there's only a very short window, I think, much the same. A very, even shorter window than with Red Bull. Yeah. I would say. <laughs> that yeah. you burn through a lot of these and they do get very repetitive. And some of them had plots that were just completely random. Mm. It didn't go anywhere, and I swear in one of them, they found out it was like a drug dream. (laughs) 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 Or that there'd be a rip in the timeline, and then they were put into the correct timeline where all the bad stuff hadn't happened. The problem with any really long-running series like that with a regular cast of characters is you're not allowed to change them mm-hmm. or kill it off or really put any major unless it's dragon lines yeah major upsets into the world mm-hmm. and Kay Applegate didn't write all of this the other thing because mm-hmm. that's way too many <laughs> so I'm sure the conclusion was possibly epic but I never got that far and I don't think they were even written the time that I was reading them. it was yeah. still on go yeah. so seeing as you never read them can't weigh in on the whether I would revisit these. My answer would definitely not. I don't think I'd I, like ever try them now. <laughs> I'm even good. at the time, I knew they weren't very... I knew they were popcorn books, mm-hmm. and I knew that they weren't particularly... Yeah. Right. 
Uh, if we're going to check off more lists in this vein, these are kind. Of, I think Animorphs and Redwall are the two major yeah. book series that were on the spinner racks in elementary school. Yes. Besides so. Choose Your Own Adventure, right? Yes. Uh, I think Kenneth Opal Silverwing. Yep. Never actually read it. Actually pretty good. From what yeah. I remember. I remember it being very good when I was 11. Yeah. Uh, and I read other stuff by Kenneth Opal that he's written not when he was 15, which is when he wrote Silverwing. Huh. That's quite good, like Airborne. But huh. Air- Airborne wasn't written at the time yeah. that I was in elementary school. It has Zeppelins in it, though, so I was bound to like it. Yep. So that kind of finishes our elementary school portion. We've skipped yeah. over the books we really remember very fondly, because we talked about them before. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now we're moving into high school, which is where the fun... And junior high. Some of these next ones I, I started in junior high. <laughs> well, we didn't have junior high, of course. We went through elementary school and high school. <laughs> well, because you grew up in the 40s. So. <laughs> and this is where we can really talk about books fitting into this young adult niche of very specific kinds of fantasy novels yes. and licensed properties that I yes. were specifically aimed at teenagers, Yes, despite ostensibly being published for audience. Well, uh, teenagers and people with poor impulse control, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I read The Lord of the Rings when I was 11. <laughs> Which meant I never got into a lot of major fantasy series that people read when they're teenagers, because I would start them and go, I think I read this before. <laughs> <laughs> also, as a giant nerd, that was the Lord of the Rings was read to me when I was a small child, so yeah. We're just huge Lord of the Rings slash high fantasy snobs, I guess. So, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, so, number one, Terry Brooks, The Swords of Shan... Again, not actually a series I've read, but I have... I did read a couple paragraphs the other day for this, and I was like, wow, this is bad! I also did... And I also read, um, when it was still available on Punkadiddle, the Adam Roberts review. Did he do a review Oh no, he did. He did. He did the Robert Jordan ones. He, somebody else did a Shannon. Yeah, uh, somebody else did the Shannon one. But I don't remember. Who yeah, but it was. is hilarious, and also gave me enough of a sense of Shannon that I was like, I'm so glad I dodged that bullet because I remember people being like, "This is the greatest series ever!" Oh my god! But um, Flick, Flick, the Frodo figure. He's the Frodo figure. Yes. And there's sure. a sword that is like the ring, but it's not. And yeah. And you have to get it instead of destroying. Which was mm-hmm. the plot of a lot of books. Yeah. And this isn't even immediately after The Lord of the Rings was published. It took a few decades before people hit on this formula. Yeah. And I guess Terry Brooks gets credit for being the first one. Mm. <laughs> you knew what you were in for based on those original paperback covers, though. Yeah. Which are truly something to behold. Most of them are by the brothers Hildebrandt, who I do not respect as an artist, sorry. <laughs> They're quite, quite embarrassing looking. Uh, but but they told you what you were in for, especially with the Sword of Shannara, which is the plot of the Lord of the Rings, and all the characters from the Lord of the Rings kind of shuffle around a bit. With some <laughs> prose that's not quite as stable. 
you know, people complain about the description in Lord of the Rings and how it takes a long time for anything to happen. Mm-hmm. And then they'll recommend Terry Brooks as some kind of alternative. And he's really not. Because <laughs> what I'm saying is it takes just as long, and it's just as tedious, because there's no denying that Lord of the Rings is, isn't is tedious, or is tedious. It's definitely tedious. But at least it's kind of, like, better written. <laughs> it's more things immediately are happening at the beginning of the Rings. People are getting ready for this giant birthday party. Yes. Whereas, if you compare the opening of the Sword of Shadrow, which is Flick walking very slowly... <laughs> it takes him forever to go, like, five feet! And then the Aragorn figure just acting like a complete jackass to this poor guy. <laughs> He's just like, ha! Maybe I'm, I could be a Black Rider allegory, or maybe I'm not, is what he does for a little while there. So, yeah. one other thing that the Sword of Shannara series gave us was the conceit that high fantasy secondary worlds actually take place in the far future after nuclear war. Yes. You know where this is going, right? Yeah. Wheel of Time. Yeah. Which, in this case, I didn't read. I read all of it, and then another one was published, and I said, no, no more. Well, Stop you it. haven't read all of it, because you stopped reading it before the last books even came out. I read all of it before, while, there, while the all of it that was there was there, and then there was more of it. Anyway, yeah, so The Wheel of Time. This used to have a hilarious review on Punkadiddle, but... um. Uh, Robert, Robert Adams? What's his name? Adam Roberts? Adam Roberts. Adam Roberts. It's because it's, uh, it's Adam Roberts and Robert Jordan, so I get the two <laughs> kind of mixed in my mind. Adam Roberts has decided that people can pay to read his wonderful prose, so that's fine. And <laughs> he had well, you can re- still get them, you just need to buy yeah. Sibyl and Frictive, is that the name of the book? Yeah, I might do that, because I reread his um, descriptions of the Lord of the Rings, which are Amazing and completely on point. Uh, uh, not the Lord of the Rings, sorry. I'm getting confused. No, he, he is the guy who reads the Lord of the Rings once every year. Yeah. <laughs> He's nerd. more of a nerd than we are. Yeah. It's pretty great. Yeah. He also wrote a book called The Dragon with the Girl Tattoo. So yeah. you kind of know what kind of guy this is. <laughs> anyway, his, his I, I agree with his assessment of the Wheel of Time completely. The first book is not bad. It's kind of, I think even he says, it has this kind of a stately character. You can read it. You could put it down and be like, that was okay. That was a big chunk of fantasy, and I just read it. And yes, there's definitely some orcs which are called Trollocs. And yes, there's definitely this Bene Gesserit sort of group of people called the Aes Sedai. And yes, there's all sorts of random junk going on, and it's kind of boring, and it's kind of flowery, but it's not awful. But after that, it gets awful. <laughs> so, it, it's this, this strange series where people get very angry when you say that it's, like, a terrible series. But it gets more and more and more inertia as the books get bigger and as less happens and as more people are introduced. And as he just starts to... He was kind of purple writing to begin with, and then it just gets really, really flowery and out of control. And honestly, like, practical things that should have been done immediately... Such as making the part of magic that you use not make you go insane. Should have probably done that right away, but no. He, the main character, ran waits for a while. Spoiler alert. And uh, yeah, by the time he does it, then he's like, "Oh, maybe I waited too late." And I don't know what the resolution of that was, because my God, this thing is huge and unwieldy, and the world just 
it doesn't make sense, because I think he was trying to do some, like, Tolkien-style world-building, but it's kind of like, there's there's countries, and, like, the border, like, sharply demarcates how cultures are. Like, you walk across the border, and people have completely different clothing, completely different food, completely different ways of thinking, and they think that the people across the border are nuts. Whereas, in, like, reality, borders sort of think cultures flow together <laughs> as history occurs. And then, you know, Arthurian legend sort of gets thrown in here randomly, and it, there's lots of kind of weird fetishy stuff later on, and it's just a mess. It turns into a huge mess. And then, you know what, I figure that what happened is that Robert Jordan didn't want to finish writing this, so he decided to die first. <laughs> and uh, thus absolved himself of finishing it. He got Brandon Sanderson to finish it for him. Who then expanded into another three books, I think? It's still yes. not done, actually. Yeah, no, it's right. done. It's finished. Is it? Is yes. it? I thought yes. it wasn't done yet. It's totally finished. Oh. Uh, the last book I'll turn into three books, because if there's anyone more long-winded and repetitive than Robert Jordan, it's Brandon Sanderson. Sorry. <laughs> <But> <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is finished. I do have some questions for you. Okay. Would you say that this is a book people... Because people are really heavily invested in the Wheel of Time. Yeah. About, which is why people get pissed off when you say anything bad about it. Yeah. Do you say this is something, some most the first fantasy that a lot of people read? I'd say quite teenager? a lot of people did. It was either going to be this or the Sword of Truth. It's, it seemed to be how it would one go. Of the, one of the other two sword books. Yeah, because the thing with it is that it's... And I wonder if people just get upset because they have invested a lot of time. Because these are massive thousand-page books. And when you've read, like, 5,000-page books, you don't want to be told that you just wasted a lot of life, a lot of your life reading Drek. But it is entirely Drek. And I regret that piece of childhood that I've been reading something better. <laughs> so, yeah, well, there's no discounting the sunk cost fallacy for why these books continue being bestsellers. Yeah. Right? the other hand, I never got to the point of ever being invested in them. Yeah. Like, again, the first book, fine. But don't get your hopes up. I assume there was something, though, because these were massively popular. Yeah, they were massively popular. But I'm, I'm still not sure why. I mean, everything's very black and white. The bad guys are bad guys. The good guys are generally good guys, and then everyone is an asshole, as far as I can tell. <laughs> no one's nice. Everyone's I think it's kind of playing a lot on, like, earlier Dragonlance type stuff. Oh, I don't remember, but was the main character a teenager? No, he was... Well, I suppose... Or did he just act like one? He, I think he just acted like one. He could have been a teenager, but he was... I suppose he would have been, like, maybe 17, 18, 19? Not really. Not the... Not, he, I think that the, he, they were all supposed to be adults, but... Um, nobody really acts like it. And the problem is that nobody has, like, interpersonal skills or ability to solve problems with, like, well, reasonable I th discourse. <laughs> I think we've hit that on the appeal for teenagers, right? Yeah. Because there's kind of, initially it starts off as sort of having three protagonists, and one is Rand Al Thor. Oh my god, there's an apostrophe in there. <laughs> and then the other two are um, Perrin, who I always thought was kind of hilarious, and Matt, who's a guy. His name is Matt. How do you have Rand, Perrin, well, and Matt? It, it is the far, far future, right? Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, the, as far as I can tell, that was the conceit for why people had completely normal names. Yeah, and, but I mean, you don't really find that out until, like, 
I don't, th- unless I was just really dense. It's not really obvious until, like, the fourth book. Then you go, what? Really? This is dumb. Also, I think the sort of, like, gender politics, because the the, the, the power that is magic, the, there's different ones that can be accessed by males and females, and the male one is all, like, is all, like, tainted for some it reason. very there is a large Bene Gesserit group of people called the Aesedi, and they are yeah, huge assholes. This whole thing with the gendered magic yeah. sounds very reminiscent of Dune. Yes, it, I would think so, personally. So, and, I do know that there was probably high melodrama, which does appeal to you when you're a teenager. It, yes, and there's a lot of, oh, woe is me, and why isn't life easier? And uh, it's like, well, if you just friggin' did what you needed to do, and or there's a lot of a lot of inertia. Almost is like people feel like they get caught up in these things, where there's like a whole this whole army, and they're all caught up in the politics of it. But I, but the problem with a lot of this is like you're supposed to be the leader of these group of people, so you should be able to tell them what to do. But then a lot of it is, well, I tell them what to do, but then they're not really listening to me, and then I might be overthrown, and blah, 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 and everyone's sort of infighting. So actually, it is sort of like how high school would do high fantasy, now that, we, now that we've talked about this. <laughs> so there we go. Um, Can we stop talking about the Wheel of yeah, Time so we're now? <laughs> stop talking about this. We're moving on to the Sword of Truth, which I know almost nothing about. Also I read, never read it, but I knew it was really popular, and this is another series people get really invested in, angry yeah. at you. Yeah, again, I actually read The Sword of Truth. In fact, I had it for quite a large number of years, and I had it up until the eighth book, The Pillars of Creation, and I had all of them, and I actually reread the whole series a couple times. This one I actually liked. Um, That doesn't mean that it's good. (laughs) I enjoy it, I'm nostalgic for it, but as we're going to find out in this podcast, I'm nostalgic and enjoy quite a lot of shitty books. (laughs) Well, I I am vaguely aware of the Ayn Rand objectivist stuff that's yeah, the later books of the Sword of Truth. That's really obvious in the sixth book, um, Faith of the Fallen, where it's basically, communism is bad! <laughs> is what that is. Um, again, very repetitive. It, 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 it's iner- it, it doesn't get this quite the same inertia. It has a repetition where it's the exact same problem in each story, where these two main characters who want to be together can't. And then high fantasy stuff is happening. And there's, there's some magic to do with that female people can act, oh my god, can access and, uh, use love to do, make people, um, confess to anything or, I don't know, stand on their head if they want to. And then there is another kind of, there is also just magic-y magic, which is out there and anyone can kind of figure out how to use that. And there was sort of three countries sort of in a, equal, divided strip. The map's kind of funny. Yes, I do remember not picking them up because I was so unimpressed by the map. (laughs) The map is kind of silly. And then there's a big empire from the south of evilness coming up. And there's also a big plane with the mud people, and they keep featuring quite frequently. I'm like, these are... They're kind of... It's a very racist depiction, I think, of Aboriginal groups. Not really sure which kind of Aboriginal group... But the the main thing that I think encapsulates kind of how silly it starts to get is the chicken incident. <laughs> the chicken who is not a chicken. The chicken, it clucked evilly. <laughs> well, briefly, it's in the fifth book, the 
I can't remember what the fifth book is called. It's not... It's if, really... if that's ever summed up the problem with these super long <laughs> I mean, the second one's Stone of Tears, and the third one's Blood of the Fold, and fourth one's Temple of Wind, and the fifth one, Soul of the Fire, that's what it is. <laughs> there we go. Um, that one, when, as a kid, I thought was much, very boring. But actually, as an adult, I thought it was more interesting, other than that stupid chicken part. Because it had more politic-type stuff in it. Yeah, so the main character is Richard? Yep. Okay, is he a teenager? No. Does he act like one? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I think we're hitting on our criteria. <laughs> no, I'm like, definitely with those descriptions, these people are all supposed to be adults. And I even remember one of the little, um, like, descriptional blurbs on the back was, very uh, adults behaving like adults in these situations, although I'm not sure that's wholly true. I do think, actually, the characterization is better in Sword of Truth than it is in um, Wheel of Time. But, I mean, again, it's still not a good series. Will I reread in the future? You know what? Possibly. I might just. Because I still kind of enjoy it. And it's not quite as awful. <laughs> okay, so that, me. I think that ends <laughs> the Holy Trilogy of X of Y books. Yes. <laughs> Which usually had really big chunks of the bookshelf dedicated to them. They still do. I think we can safely move on to Mercedes Lackey, which, this is very much women's young yes. adult fantasy. Yep. I remember starting to read one and getting that vibe very quickly as a teenage boy. <laughs> and not yeah. finishing it. <laughs> also, I mean, definitely, definitely popcorn. Really popcorn. But I have a couple on my shelf still, and I read those when I feel sick and I need to be home for a day, and I just want to feel good. Well, um, there's lots of horse wish fulfillment stuff. Yeah, that's <laughs> I actually haven't really read the the, um, the Heralds of Valdemir, I think they're called. I read one series and I thought it's like, eh, this is too Mercedes Lackey for me, even. <laughs> well, don't most of them have kind of animal bonding... Yeah, I mean the uh, the uh, the series that I've reread the most is the Griffin trilogy, which is just the Black Griffin, the White Griffin, and the Silver Griffin. Really exciting titles here, and um, there's lots of Griffins, and there's war and high fantasy. Would you they're say fun. that they're <laughs> building on Pern? That one, mm, or just in general? I'd say that that Pern would have an influence on it. I'm not. I know they're not building on Pern. I wouldn't yeah. think. The problem with the White Griffin is that there's a really bad Orientalism issue. There's a really bad Orientalism <laughs> issue there that it's incredibly insulting. Again, the big question for books I've never read, how often were there teenage protagonists? I don't think any of these people were teenagers. But again, with the Griffin, you can't really tell. <laughs> um, did he behave like a teenager? Yes. Did actually some of the other person who I thought was supposed to be an probably actually another thing about it? Yes, also behaves like a teenager. <laughs> Um, I'd say another one I want to bring up is probably the one that I reread the most often because it's kind of silly and the most just sort of pure buttery popcorny fun is um, the Fairy Godmother, which is a lot of yay woman power yay, and there's a bit of sort of light light titillation of the senses and some man meat and not a whole lot else <laughs> in it. Very fluffy. It also goes on on onto the um, uh, aesthetic that I like of using uh, fairy tale tropes. Creating a world where fairy tale tropes are actually powers that try to force people's lives to f fit a fairy tale trope. 
and by changing or using this power, which they call the the tradition, you can get magic. Okay. It's actually quite a lot of fun. I would actually recommend it, just as long as you realize it's not a good book. It's just fun. (laughs) (laughs) Moving along through the books... I didn't read, but were popular at the time. Mm. I think David Eddings is our last one. Very popcorny too. Quite a lot of fun again. And I, yes, I have those on my shelf, and I will still reread, reread them. I wouldn't say they're bad books. I wouldn't say they're good, I but they're think... not bad. Like they're they're just they're just mediocre, and they fill the need that you have. <laughs> I have heard that they get very repetitive. Yeah. They do feature young protagonists. I'm pretty sure of it that. It does. He's actually quite young. He's like 12 or 13 or something when they start. And he ages as they go through. And I do know the story of David Eddings writing these and that he drew a map and then he went, now they'll visit all these locations. Which is not the worst thing. It does kind of have that border issue that Robert Jordan has where I'm like, wow, you crossed the border and the cultures are very different. And all these people are very different and they look across their borders and think that each other are very strange. And there is serious Orientalism issues as well. Uh, yeah. I think it's safe to say that Lackey and Eddings were actually specifically aimed at teenagers. I think they were. were I think that's very fair to say. Not in the way that Brooks, Jordan, and Goodkind were. No. So they have that going for them, I Mm -hmm. suppose. I think the main thing with Eddings is that there's, like, it's a serious story, but the characters are very flippant about everything all the time. (laughs) I think that that's the appeal. Because I was like, yeah, this big epic thing is going on, but we're just all chums. <laughs> so. so, for those of you who are wondering what I was reading, not having read these touchstones of teenage nerdhood that we've just gone through, uh, I read a lot of quote-unquote sexy historical fiction <laughs> from the dark ages of historical fiction in the 90s. Oh, Which, yes. this was specifically written for adults, but it felt like they were written by teenagers. <laughs> Uh, I read a lot of Michael Crichton, who, again, best-selling author, lots of people like him and don't like you saying bad things about him, but they aren't books that I would revisit as an adult. Mm -hmm. And lots of Harry Turtledove, who did this wonderful thing of writing alternate history that was actually just going, oh, this thing has changed, so all the events in history that happened afterwards just happened in a different place. But since we're talking about fantasy mostly, mm-hmm. these don't really fit. We're not going to yeah. go into those. Yeah. We are going to talk about licensed properties, which I think were... I don't think the authors were aware that they were mar- specifically marketed for teenagers, but definitely the publishers were. Uh, are we talking about Dragonlance now? We're talking about Forgotten Realms and Dragonlance. The yeah! Wow. Properties. Also, That's, Magic the Gathering had their own book series I'd like to point out as well. Which the same company bought TSR, if yeah. I remember correctly. I so it so. all folds under the same. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the spinner racks in our high school <laughs> <laughs> libraries. Yeah. This was half of them, as far yes. as I can tell. It was just Dragonlance, Forgotten Realms. We didn't really mm. have the Magic the Gathering ones. Standout names include Ed Greenwood, or Forgotten Realms, Elmister series. He's Canadian, so that's something. Yay. This was, I didn't read the Elmister books. Did you? I never read Forgotten Realms, so. Okay. I think a lot of it came down to whether you thought the logo was not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Forgotten Realms didn't have a very cool logo. Yeah. Uh, 
Are Salvatore is the other big one, Rose, with his emo warrior elf, dark elf, huh. Drist. Yes. Although of- Drist is just in D&D, so, yeah. Yes, Drist is very appealing yeah. to the gothic-leading teenage boy, as it caters directly to that kind of emo fantasy. Mm-hmm. But th- again, neither of us consumed Forgotten Realms that much. But we, we both did read Dragonlance. <laughs> Hickman's famous trilogy, or infamous trilogy. Not just a trilogy. Oh, that's right. I only read three. Okay, you, I read more. Uh, I read the uh, uh, Dragons of Autumn and Twilight, Dragons of Winter Night, and Dragons of Spring Dawning, and I said enough! (laughs) You read the originals. Yes. The original trilogy. I think it is worth going to the backstory of Dragonlance, because I find it kind of amusing. TSR was not planning on publishing books, but Weiss and Hickman, or at least Tracy Hickman, came up with a uh, bunch of D&D modules. Yep that followed an epic storyline, and they were going to have novels that tied into this. Yes. So Weiss and Hickman were going to be the editors, and they didn't know what was going to come of their novel line. They thought it was just going to be the one. They hired a writer to do it. I guess they didn't like the changes the writer was proposing. So over a weekend, they wrote the prologue and an outline for the first few chapters. And turned it into their bosses, who were happy with it, and fired the initial writer. Oh my goodness, this explains so much. (laughs) So, because Tracy and Margaret were supposed to be the editors, that means the books weren't edited by someone else. This explains so much about the quality of these books. (laughs) So they read like rough drafts, and I think this is the reason why. Yeah. Well, they don't just read, like, rough drafts, because, I mean, other books by Weiss and Hickman that have been edited by other people, I find, don't haven't been improved much. They're just not very good writers. <laughs> so, yeah. But mainly, when you read them, you can tell their origin in the modules. Oh, yeah. They very much seem like transcriptions of someone's D&D campaign. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, roll Please. initiative! <laughs> Yep, the fight scenes are in that particular style of everyone taking a turn mm-hmm. kind of deal. Yep. And the main story is about a group of adventurers who fall into the various character classes. They meet in a tavern. Yes. Like every early D&D adventure, it begins in a tavern. Yep. <laughs> this tavern happens to be in a either in a tree or in a treehouse. It's kind of the same remember. thing. But there is a dwarf, a half-elf fighter, a mage, Raislin, what's his face? Yeah, he's the one with that. His brother, who's a barbarian fighter. There's a healer. Uh, There's some very obvious Mormon stuff (laughs) behind this world. Are they Mormons, too? Tracy Hickman is Mormon. Mm. I don't know about Margaret Weiss. But you can tell, because it's all about uncovering discs. Hmm. that bring back knowledge of the gods uh. into the world. Oh, okay. Because, I mean, I knew there were lots of Mormons in sci-fi. I didn't know it was in fantasy, too. Well, Brandon Sanderson's Mormon. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Robert Jordan wasn't. But no, I could kind of... That one I, I would have been really shocked by. Because that did not read that way. <laughs> anyway, Mormon tangent. <laughs> 
Yeah, so this was, I think this was before Forgotten Realms. I think this definitely was the first uh-huh. TSR book. It was successful enough that it became a trilogy. Cause yeah. They wrote this one specifically thinking if it ended there, well, then we have one book that's satisfying, mm-hmm. which isn't the case because it's more like two books jammed together with completely different plots. I can't remember because I know from Autumn Twilight... I, I know, or maybe it's in Winter Night where they're like, and then we had the adventure with the ice dragon, and we defeated the white dragon and got the thing. But we're not going to tell you about that. And I was like, that sounds yeah, way more interesting than anything else going on in this stupid book. <laughs> in the second and third books, especially in the second one, I feel like they were written on tight deadlines, because there are very important events that are completely elided. And there'll be like a little poem, mm. and then someone will have a flashback to, you know, Finding the Dragonlance, yeah. which is the title of the whole series. And apparently it's the War of the Lands. I'm like, it seems like an important artifact. You would have thought that this would be maybe, at least, yeah, it's, I don't know, reported. It sounds like, yeah, it sounds like it should be kind of important yeah. and actually narrated. Although, it, you could argue that it would just be another MacGuffin thing, then. Like most of the various plots in these books, yeah, <sighs> they are. They do read like a whole bunch of separate modules until maybe the third one, yeah. where they finally realize they need to tie things together. <laughs> Suddenly, the DM is like, "Ooh, I'm running out of paper." <laughs> <laughs> there are sexy times in this, which I guess is what gets them the adult <laughs> designation. I guess they're very, they're very fade to black. Yeah. And they involve one particular character, Kitiara, who turns out to be evil later on. Oh, yeah. And she seems like this major character with all this major backstory, and she doesn't appear mm-hmm. until, like, halfway through. Yeah. <laughs> so between her and Tannis, he's the elven dude. Yeah. Yeah. Between her and Tannis. He's, he's really emo. <laughs> yeah. Like, seriously. So there's this whole high school romance between him and the elvish. Yeah. Chick. Yeah. See, we're, we're trying very hard to remember names, but it's not easy. I, well, I expunged so much of these books from my brain because they were so bad. <laughs> and, yeah, even in terms of world building, it's all very aligned towards D&D. Yeah. Not only in that everyone has an alignment, and it's very clear, yeah. like, evil wizards wear black robes. Yeah. <laughs> I remember... Evil wizards wear red robes. Yeah. Good wizards wear white robes. I remember that there was even a bit where they're like visiting some elves and they're like, oh my god, he's wearing a red robe. He's a neutral wizard. And it's like, I can tell this guy's going to be evil later on. I remember the bit where he like changes his clothes. And I was like, oh. Oh no. Yeah, Tannis was not the most emo character in the Dragonlance books. Really? That was Raislin, wizard guy. Yeah, but he did a lot less. <laughs> you gotta. Well, he ends up doing a lot more. Well, no, what I mean is, I think it's like I don't remember getting as much from his viewpoint. That's true. Like he, he's mostly just a jerk to everyone, especially his brother. Yeah, and you're just like, why is he even in the party? Yeah, I'm just like he's so obviously going to turn evil. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's got hourglasses for eyes, guys. Come on. <laughs> So the one important thing to bring up is that Forgotten Realms started out mm-hmm. as short stories by Ed Greenwood that ended up having D&D campaigns and modules based on them. Uh, so it reads a lot differently than this. Yeah, um, 
I mean, uh, there was that article, which I suppose you could link to this blog that was kind of interesting about how important Dragonlance is in terms of influences on fantasy. It doesn't mean they're good books by any means, but a lot of tropes get sort of set up, and a, a lot of the elves are actually giant assholes and such other things are established, which is true. But man, I wish they'd been in better books than they were. I, of course, was snared by the There Was a Dragon on the Cover issue that I frequently have. <laughs> like Terry Brooks' Shannara series, the covers on these books told you exactly I know, I should have ignored the dragon and, look at, and looked at that. At these suspicious posed warriors. Huh? It is Larry Elmore arts, which is very iconic uh-huh. for early D and D stuff. Yeah. And yeah, you want ridiculous furry underwear and <laughs> plates. Big horned helmets. That is the biggest plates. and horniest helmets on the dwarf, if I remember not in Twilight. <laughs> yeah, one one of the characters is a barmaid. Who, like, hits people with frying pans. Yeah. That's pretty obvious from the cover. Yeah. I mean, there are some interesting character dynamics that end up getting explored more in the Legends trilogy that followed this up. But here's the thing with the Legends trilogy is I didn't have access to the second one. I only read the first and third one, and I didn't feel like I'd actually missed anything. <laughs> Which tells you the quality of the writing in here, no matter mm-hmm. what you might think of the story or the relationship between the two brothers yeah. or the cosmology, which is kind of interesting, even though it's completely driven by D&D. Yeah, but that's only because like D&D, D&D has sort of built up its cosmology into a kind of a crazy and therefore interesting kind of way, because the world... But the whole thing of the tropes of D&D is dealt with much better in, like, The Order of the Stick, which is a wonderful online comic that I recommend. I don't recommend these books at all for anyone, because <laughs> they're awful. But we read them as kids because we did not know any better. <laughs> yeah, so there are probably over a hundred Dragonlance books now by a lot of authors. Mm-hmm. Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman went on to be highly successful and wrote a lot of stuff together. Mm-hmm. None of it really um, any good, as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading parts of the Deathgate cycle. Is that the one that I was talking about where I read, I think, the second book, and there's, like, space? I th- that was the Dark Sword. Oh. <laughs> they all have names that are very much blend together. <laughs> Wait, is, I thought the Dark Sword was, like, where most people had magic, but the one guy didn't. Yes. That's Dark Sword. They forge like a magic-sucking sword. And they're all in murder! Yeah, I didn't finish that one either. And then, (laughs) at one point, it turns out that all the magicians were, like, exiled from Earth, and it turns into a science fiction story. Yeah. Here's the funny thing, because we're talking about a lot of these (laughs) stories, and while they have these fantasy that turns into sci-fi, that's the thing, most of them are just high fantasy stories. And there's... Yes. It seems like we led that there's less dreck in the sci-fi world. Which is makes me sad, because I always prefer fantasy, but I'm rapidly reaching a point where I'm like, there's just not as much that's good. <laughs> I feel like we were just naturally more inclined to read more fantasy yeah. as teenagers, and we missed out on a lot of the terrible science fiction, because there yeah. is a lot. I, oh, that's true. I mean, just like all the, like... <laughs> 
Star Trek DS9 novels, which I read one of, and that was pretty bad. But um, Yeah, we didn't even touch on, in terms of license properties, we just talked about the D&D stuff. I suppose, yeah. There was Star Wars, Star uh, Trek, yeah. Stargate, Doctor Who. Uh, yeah. Every long-running series had its companion novels. And I suppose, it, because I'm still more inclined to read fantasy, I just, when I look at the books on the sci-fi shelf, that's kind of cruddy looking, I'm like, ah, don't even think about them. When I look at the fantasy ones, I'm like, well, there's a corset, and then I move on, so I maybe I just pay more attention there, because my natural predilections. Also, I'm looking for where there might be a dragon on the cover. It's, it's a very important element. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that wraps up our discussion of that yeah. section of the spinner rack. Yep. There's definitely other stuff. Yeah. I mean, we had Discworld in our high school library. Oh, yeah, but Discworld is but great. But Discworld is great. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I don't consider them as aimed towards teenagers or something only teenagers read. No. All ages read Discworld. Yeah, they're just right? written. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy similarly isn't aimed at teenagers. It's just aimed, generally, at the world. Mm. You can read it. <laughs> I mean, a lot of us read this stuff. When we were teenagers, or we started, but we yeah. have continued, yeah. unlike what most of the stuff we've been discussing. Yeah. I suppose there's goosebumps, but we don't really need to talk about it because you haven't read any of it, and it's, it's no. I read R.L. Stein's Choose Your Own Adventures, and then one book my sister had that I thought was going to turn into a horror story about telephone conversations that didn't. <laughs> yeah, I did read. I read a bunch of Goosebumps books, books as a kid. I actually had a decent number, I think. Mainly I read them at the school library. And then I read, like, the beginning of the Fear Street trilogy, which was ridiculous. And also incorrect his history about witchcraft. And um, we don't really need to talk about it, because they they're as bad as Animorphs. Like, really. Same kind of concept. Pump out a bunch of things to get some... Probably more like grade 6 age students... They're and, skewed younger yeah. than Animorphs. Yeah. I think. So it doesn't really suit the teenage demographic, but it's definitely so it wouldn't fit. In, it doesn't fit in YA now, but it's definitely some bad books I read when I was younger. Yeah. yeah. So to wrap up all of that, I wanted to get into a discussion about today's young adult literature compared to what we considered stuff for teenagers back then. Did you say there's any particular elements that made these books substantially different from what ends up on the YA shelves today? I can think of one, but I'll let you go first. Um, probably just, like, I don't know, the binding? <laughs> Mainly it's length yeah. for me. That YA books tend to be yeah. shorter, which yeah. is a good thing considering the content of what we've been talking about. Yeah, I mean, with The Sword of Truth and The Wheel of Time, I wish they were shorter because it would be better if there was less of them. But I, th I suppose that's actually was kind of the appeal when I was a kid, was that you would be reading this massive-looking book, which is actually not that hard to read because it's pretty much just direct and it's you just kind of have to plow through it. But it's not like it's difficult language, but it looked Im impressive to anyone else. You'd look very literary, except that once you got older, you regretted that. So, <laughs> Well, a big feature of these books' lengths was that they were massively repetitive. Yeah. And this is a case with a lot of the 1,000-plus mm -hmm. page fantasy novels that you even pick up today. Mm -hmm. 
is that they just assume you're not going to remember what happened a few pages back, yeah. so they'll reiterate what this magic spell does and how you do it. Yeah. <laughs> Tedium. Ad nauseum. Yeah. yeah. So when you were reading this stuff, mm-hmm. I guess going back to length, we were both kids who would pick up the biggest book on the shelf, I think it's safe Yeah, because we were, we were those kind of kids. <laughs> so. Did you feel like... You were reading an adult book when you picked up. Yes, at the time. At the time, yes. I thought this was definitely what the adults read. And when and when I reached my own age of majority, I was like, "This is not what adults read." <laughs> adults think that other adults who read this are stunted, <laughs> <laughs> which might not be untrue. <laughs> I'll keep a, I still still keep a couple on my shelf, anyway, so I'm not. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that in my case it was just this book is thick. <laughs> so it must be for older people. Yeah. And this book has some sexy times in it. Yeah. So clearly Barely. It's for adults. Barely some sexy times. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Another question. Were you more likely to read outside your comfort zone at the time or less? More likely to read outside my comfort zone. Because now we have this YA category that's aimed specifically at an age group, but doesn't encompass any one genre. Yeah. So you have your section of the library, but you can read in any genre you want. Whereas back in the day, we were clearly, at least the books we're talking about that skew towards teenagers, are very genre-heavy. Yeah, they're, they are very, very much focused in one category. I would pretty much go to fantasy and sci-fi in the library. Um, I mean, none of the school library, in the public library, or in the local chapter's ubiquitous monstro- monstrosity stores. And um, that's that's actually still what I do today. It's just kind of a habit. That's where I end up. And You, you beeline? I pretty much beeline. And I, I mean, you know, it's too bad because I think I miss out on a lot of good speculative fiction because I don't because it doesn't really fit anywhere in the store because speculative fiction just is all the stuff that's cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and but it doesn't really fit anywhere. It's the opposite of the genreification. It's a broader category, and big bookstores don't want broader categories. They want smaller ones that fit into those neat single shelving units. <laughs> And yeah, the thing with the library is that books are usually just by author. Yes. Which meant when I was a teenager browsing, as we mentioned earlier, I tend to go, oh, this is a historical thing, I'll pick that up. Ah. Or this is a classic. I tend to just, anything that looked like it had a binding that stood out, <laughs> in, I would in, probably pull down. In the Sherwood Park Public Library, the way, I don't know if it's still done this way, but the way it was done was they'd have stickers for, like, the genres. So there'd be a fantasy sticker with a sticker which had a dragon on it. <laughs> there was, like, a mystery sticker which had, like, a Sherlock Holmes head and a guy holding an hourglass, and there'd be a sci-fi sticker, which was, like, a UFO kind of thing. So they'd actually sticker the books. Because they weren't authors, but you'd have this bit on the spine so that you'd have a sense of what kind of genre it was. So that's sort of how I'd search. Okay, we didn't have that. Yeah, well, it's not my fault you grew up in the 1940s. (laughs) So you'd browse along and go, hey, this book looks gigantic. Basically. (laughs) So that leads us into the Great Harry Potter Revolution, which was only just starting when we were young. Like yeah. I was 11 the first Harry Potter book. Came I remember out. it because my uncle 
um, who lives in England, came over. And Harry Potter obviously started in England much earlier than here. And he said, what, you mean Marie's not reading Harry Potter? But this is, like, exactly the kind of book that she'd love. So he went out and he bought a copy from a store here and gave it to me. And it's uh, said it was so before the Harry... This is not saying it was before it was cool, because it's kind of funny, because I totally didn't open this book for, like, four years. <laughs> he totally... He, he bought a copy, and it has, like, Dumbledore with, like, a brown beard on the back, because it's was before it got reprinted the second time and everything, and it became really well known. But it was funny, because I looked at him, like, he gets on a train and he goes somewhere? I don't know if I want to read this. Then a while later, I heard people were reading this thing, and I was like, oh, I have that book. It's just been sitting on my shelf, and I just haven't gotten to it yet. Then I read it, and I'm like, oh, this is great! And then, then, then Harry Potter does eventually run into its own issues. <laughs> well, I was in grade six, and our teacher read it to us. Because ah. our teacher was Welsh. Mm. So he was like, hey, something from England is popular. Yay! <laughs> uh, unlike you, I didn't end up liking them that much. <laughs> so I never continued on with the series after the second book. I have, I do have them all still. I have read them all. And I think I think because I, I read... Because I started them be long before I read like The Wheel of Time or Sword, Sword of Truth. But I finished them much after. So I think that sort of my literary, I swung from sort of being, a, the, when you're younger and you kind of have no sense of taste in books, and you, everything seems fine, to being, I think, overly critical, because I think I was honestly scarred from Robert Jordan. And so then I I, be, I think I became overly critical of, like, the Harry Potter books, even as they exploded and kind of had that um, same inertia problem. And... Uh, so, some other literary issues, but I think honestly I should probably just forgive forgive that a bit and just be like, this is a book that is more for kids. And I think that, that Harry Potter is definitely kind of, I want to say where YA sort of really starts. Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. This is mm -hmm. Harry Potter comes and then a few years later you start seeing mm -hmm. more books like it, mm -hmm. skewing towards this age group. Mm -hmm. And then before you know it, you have YA sections in bookstores, yeah. which at first started out just as books like Harry Potter. Yes, I remember those shelves. <laughs> if you like Harry Potter, you'd like this. <laughs> yeah, and then you ended up with an entire publishing category that has its own agents, mm -hmm. that has its own imprints mm -hmm. from the big publishing houses. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, this is something we can't really answer. Yeah. Because we're not growing up mm -hmm. in this segment of marketing and literature, yeah. right? Well, about what it means to have this separate yeah. section of adults writing for a pretty narrow age group. And, I mean, it's kind of funny because a bunch of books, which are perfectly good books, like The Giver and things, get kind of rammed into this because they're like, well, it kind of works with this age group. There's almost a back sorting of what sort of things can be put there that were previously not marketed that way. And it's kind of like you get the newer ones that were made for the category and then older ones that are just sort of shelved in next to it and they hope that it works. Well, there's a lot of reprints mm -hmm. of older books that were supposedly adult books before, mm -hmm. but come out with YA editions now. And, and now I honestly feel a little bit insulted. I think because when I was younger, I'm like, this is a book for an adult, and now you're telling me this is a book for a teenager? I mean, that, as we've gone through this discussion, I'm like, yeah, these people do all act like teenagers, and it's probably more juvenile. But I, 
the, the thing about the young adult category is that, yeah, it's for teenagers, but also, it's also for quite a lot of se- people in, like, their early 20s, and the heck, late 20s at this point, too, continue to oh, read that's them. Oh, called, that's called new adult now. Oh, God! <laughs> I know. I, it's very true that... Why can't we just though, have books? <laughs> even though this marketing segment is supposedly aimed at teenagers, I think mm-hmm. a big chunk of the buying market mm-hmm. is adults, and not just adults who are buying stuff for their kids. Yeah. It's, I want to read a fantasy story that's not 1,200 pages long. Mm-hmm. It also has turned it a little bit, though, into you have to go into, into a section that's targeted for a group younger than you, so me, and so it's almost, I feel, a little bit kind of like, you're too old for this, really. It's well, sort of the also sense the of it. pushback that yeah. it feels like it's confining yeah. an age group's reading habits. Yeah. Because we, as we've said before, would maybe we would go for the stuff we liked. Yeah. But we would search all over the place for it. Mm-hmm. And well, I still tend to be lying. But uh, there, there's a way better independent store in my new new hometown now, so I just wander all over that place, and every book in there is great, because they have good taste. Because they're not chapters, but anyway. <laughs> Different podcasts. <laughs> Yeah, so we can't really resolve the issues that I kind of brought up here, being that we grew up in a different time. Aww, we're old. <laughs> you, you were in the 1940s, and I was in the 90s, you know. Time goes on. <laughs> and we're just uh, observing this from a distance and wondering what it means to have people writing for this yeah. specific category, what it means to have this kind of standardized language. Mm-hmm. Always have to have a young protagonist, which wasn't the case for mm-hmm. books for children in middle grade before. You could perfectly well have adults as the protagonist mm-hmm. in a book for kids or teenagers. Mm-hmm. But YA doesn't really do that. I do remember that there was, like, <laughs> teen books as a kid. Like, it wasn't like YA. It was like... No, it's yeah. the mi- what we called middle grade now. Yeah. It was the junior section. It was your Sweet Valley High. I remember I would read some of the things like Eric Wilson, which is the like Eric Wilson's a, a more Canadian phenomenon. But is it um, Ro- Roger Cormier, Robert Cormier. What are you talking? There's another guy who wrote a bunch of kids' books. Yeah, but like that kind of age group, and I always felt less with Eric Wilson, but some with other kind of books where they they were obviously for teens or early tweens kind of groups. I just felt that the characters were really dumb. Really dumbed down because they're kids and they couldn't have none of their own agency. And what I liked about the adult books, or the air quotes and quotes adult books, is that they seemed to be people who at least, like, weren't completely dumb and they tried to do things in their adventures, as opposed to just being a kid who was useless. It's important to remember that while those books usually had teenage protagonists, that wasn't the reading group they were aiming for. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time, for books for younger people, the protagonist would be a few years older mm-hmm. than the person you envision reading them. Right? Yeah. So I don't think Sweet Valley High was actually aimed at people going to high school. <laughs> I doubt it. It's a bit like how I don't think Archie is aimed at high school students either. <laughs> 
Well, well yeah. that was a pretty epic podcast. Yeah. Uh, glad you all endured it with us. Yeah, I'm kind of depressed now, actually. <laughs> I read a lot of terrible things, and now I'm not sure about the state of publishing. So, <laughs> there you go. <sighs> so, thank you for listening. If you want to find old episodes of this podcast, you can go to iTunes, you can go to Stitcher, or you can visit my website, onelastsketch.wordpress.com. I also write a bunch of articles and book reviews and feature some other stuff there. And I also have a web serial up right now on a different site called Zeppelins Are What Dreams Are Made Of. That's at zaudamo.wordpress.com. Z-A-W-D-A-M-O. And I really recommend those stories. They're really, oh my god. Zeppelins Are What Dreams Are Made Of is all I will say. <laughs> and you can find me over at One Last Sketch. Sorry, you can find me here frequently. You can find me over at yatrapexy.wordpress.com where I try to talk about medical things when I'm not post-call. So. <laughs> so. Thank you all for listening, and if you like this podcast, please recommend it. Bye! Bye.